Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. I'm your host, Troy. My pronouns are he, him. And as always, I am joined today by my co-host. My name's Ed. My pronouns are they and them. I definitely didn't oversleep today and get us on a late start. Yeah, don't worry about it. It is, after all, a day that we cannot forget. Um, dang, I don't remember. Oh, well. Oh, well. Nothing Um, important happened. Yes, definitely, definitely not remembering the coup in South America that the CIA did. Oh, shit, that's right. Uh, Chile, you are not forgotten. Yes, always remember the damage caused to the presidential palace of Chile. So today... We're talking about Planescape, a classic Dungeons and Dragons setting. Woo! I'm sorry, what was that? I heard, I thought you meant uh, best setting. I don't know that I'd say it's the best setting, although it does contain many of the other settings, because it's all about the planes and the multiverse and such. Um, much like Spelljammer, but honestly, more interesting. Here we go. We jam Spelljammer into Planescape. Problem solved. That's actually much more doable right now, where Spelljammer takes place on the Astral Sea, because the Astral Sea links the planes, among other things. Um, that being said, Planescape has a much more interesting, like, philosophical edge to it that uh, is why it's so beloved. And why the video game made for it, Planescape Torment, is so well-remembered. I mean, also just how weird the video game was. You could have a skull as one of your party members. Yeah, and he was the best character. So I've heard. But before we get into that, we have a segment on this podcast called The Weekend Hobby, where we talk about what we've done the last weekend hobby. I'll go first. Mine was pretty simple. Uh, Two games of my D&D campaigns. In the first one, they just continued into the dungeon that they are currently delving into. Uh, they encountered some more uh, Dolgaunts and an Intellect Devourer. They ran into some Sturges. The party kind of separated and went two different directions briefly, and the Warlock ran into some Sturges and immediately overreacted and dumped a fourth-level spell slot trying to protect himself from things that do 1d4 plus 1 damage each turn, at most. Yeah, I was I was thinking, I was like, uh, those are basically D&D mosquitoes, what are you doing? Yes. Also, they missed him with their attacks. <laughs> so he Get burned wrecked. a fourth level spell slot for no reason, essentially. Uh, they delved deeper into the dungeon, they found some tombs, they ran into a ghast, which is a knoll, but, uh, not a knoll, a ghoul, but worse, uh, and found some troglodytes, who don't really want to fight them, but we'll see how that goes next session. Um, they did not find some of the other stuff that's around, uh, but there's a bunch more things in this cavern area and some other places they might want to go. So we'll see how that works out. Also, I've set up a trap section where normally there's just a roper 
but I've added a bunch of uh, other, like, underdark creatures hanging out. Uh, the big one being piercers that will drop from the ceiling while the party is engaging the roper. Haven't seen those in a while. Oh, yeah, I mean, piercers and ropers together are a classic, like, cave encounter. Um, you just don't see a whole lot of cave encounters these days. My other group, however, was doing cave encounters because having, you know, destroyed a quarter of the powers of this ancient beast that was trapped in a kyber dragon shard, they had to decide which of the other ones they were going to go for. Would they go for the one in the Eldine Reaches? Would they go for the one located in Flame Keep? Would they go for the one located somewhere in the Maror Holds? Well, that's the order of, like, how close they were, and that's the order in which I was writing the, like, stuff they could do for them. And obviously, they chose the one that was farthest away and that I had the least written for. As players do. Yes, that is what players do. And had I written it the other way, they would have gone for the closest one, and I wouldn't have had anything written for it. Um, but they made it there. They determined that uh, the shard is presumably locked away in the depths below, which are the ancient dwarven halls below the current dwarven civilization that are occupied by strange aberrations and monstrosities that have come out of the Underdark in Eberron, and that the current dwarven civilization is kind of raiding and trying to reclaim. They learned a little bit about three organizations that are attempting to do this, uh, they picked the one that is the Soldak Union, who are all about, like, they're artificers and warlocks who are using these strange, like, symbiotic magitech of the aberrations, uh, to try and fight them. So they have, like, living armor and whips and stuff like that, and they're you know, they signed on to work as a guard with one of these groups and delved into the realm below and had a minecart chase with, after they they ran into a purple worm and there were some minecarts and so they hopped in the minecarts to run away. And then the cleric managed to banish the purple worm so it popped out of existence for a minute. Um, but they had to, like, make quick decisions as the minecarts rattled down the rails and then uh yeah fought some salamanders because they made it to a lava section i've been resisting the urge to make a delved too deep joke oh yeah the ancient dwarves delved too deep and fought a war against these creatures from the underdark um the modern dwarves are trying to reclaim what the ancient dwarves did uh and you know magitech living armor and crown of beholder eyes and such so that'll take them into the next section where they actually get into, like, one of the vaults of the realm beneath. And yeah, that that's what they're up to. How about you, Ed? Get any hobby stuff done this week? No, my work has still been just absolute shenanigans. I'm having to do a lot of traveling, so my weekend hobby was not... Um, I got myself a Labor Day gift and got a copy of Scythe. Uh, I opened that last night. That is a very well-made and very expensive game. 
uh, as far as like the production values go. Uh, so that'll be interesting to play. I really like the art. They put a lot of work into it. And from what it sounds like, the visual, uh, I don't know why I keep trying to say acuity. Yeah, the visual experience is almost as good as the, the gameplay. It sounds like it kind of lives up to what they were trying to do there. Um, what else? Play a little bit of D&D. Um, not a whole lot that I can talk about there since one half of this show is a player character in that game. There were dwarves. We fought them. Yeah, dwarves went beast mode. Um, I was kind of worried that uh, the party was going to get killed in that encounter because I escalated it a bit more than I had anticipated, but that's probably a good thing rather than your players being like, oh, there's absolutely no danger here at all from anything, ever. But did run into the issue of 5E where everything is a little bit too generic because even this particular boss character, they're just like, yeah, just use the standard dwarf stat block. It's like, really? He's a boss. That's, that's all you're giving me? Oh yeah, when I do homebrew stuff, I a lot of times if it's a boss or NPC that I think might be a re reoccurring thing, I make them as a player character. I roll up stats and then I start adjusting things to make them, you know, unique and have some of the abilities similar to player characters. Yeah, so I think the the final boss for the act will likely need to get that treatment since Again, they're just like, use the regular stat block with no special abilities whatsoever. Yeah, or I just generate new special abilities and stuff for them. Um, that's how my party fought a lightning behir. Fun. There was a behir, but all of its abilities got switched to lightning-based, and it was, yeah, it was a like lightning elemental that used behir stat blocks, or a astral kraken that had force damage attacks instead of lightning attacks mm -hmm. um, and was immune to force damage which really annoyed the warlock you and then i've been trying to get it. been trying to get my office cleaned up for a while now but just been so busy that any free time i have i have to spend doing actual productive things not cleaning an office boo to both yeah. cleaning offices and being productive. Yep. And it's not not like game-related, but I uh, received a uh, plush doll of my favorite drag queen from a Pride Month charity uh, that I supported a couple months ago, and so she is now overlooking my hobby area. Nice. Making it fabulous. Yeah. And, yeah, that was my weekend hobby that really kind of wasn't since that D&D game happened last week. Uh, I think the day after we recorded the last episode. That puts it within the time frame. Yeah, that counts. But you know what so, else is fabulous? Uh, Planescape. Planescape! Yeah. So, originally published in 1994 and designed by David Zeb Cook with art by Tony Di, Di Trilizzi. 
Planescape was an award-winning setting that pushed the boundaries of the D&D cosmology. Previously, Dungeons & Dragons books about the planes had treated them as places where high-level adventurers could go to fight cosmic evils and encounter the personifications of natural forces. The Planescape setting expanded on this, asking the question of what civilizations would look like when built among the vastness and strangeness of these worlds. They look fucking weird. They do. Very spiky. Um, I have to say, I love Tony DeTrilizzi's art. Uh, He's he is an incredibly prolific illustrator and um what was it uh, the spider rick chronicles is a book series that he did he's also worked with uh, he's a fantastic artist and his artwork really gives a very specific character to planescape setting unfortunately that's where i'm gonna have to disagree with you but that's just my personal taste in art for whatever reason. You don't like his art? His, I haven't seen a whole lot of his stuff outside of Planescape, but just the stuff that I've seen in the Planescape books and stuff, it just doesn't do it for me for some reason. But it has been a while, so maybe I need to like give it a second look. But reading through it, I was just kind of like, eh, it's good, but it just doesn't do it for me for whatever reason. I like the fact that he did so much of it that it's internally consistent in the way that some books aren't. That I do like. Everything looks the same. It was all drawn by the same hand. Yeah. Um, the thing about Planescape, it's also a place that's linked to all the more normal worlds of Dungeons & Dragons. Just in case you want to try and go home again. <laughs> but why would you want to? You have the infinite vastness of the multiverse. Yes. So Planescape has three principles that govern the general feel and design of the setting. The rule of three the unity of rings, and the center of all. These are sort of like a combination of philosophical rules and like game design rules. And they are essentially, the rule of three is that things generally happen in threes. It's a good rule in comedy. Why doesn't it, why shouldn't it apply for D&D? &D? Uh, the unity of rings says that many things on the planes are circular, and a lot of things eventually come back to where they started. Again, this is both Karma's like... going to bite you in the ass. <laughs> well, it's both geographical. Uh, the city of Sigil is a Taurus. The Outlands is like a giant pancake-esque shape. Um, even the Abyss, the Nine Hells or whatever, are like circles. And it's also a philosophical story thing. A good story brings you back around to where you started, right? Huzzah. Um, and the last one, the center of all, states that there is a center to, any th to everything, and the center of the multiverse is wherever a person happens to be at the moment, at least from their perspective. Um, I like that idea. And, you know, the principle of this leads into one of the key things about Planescape, which is the its interest in and discussion of philosophy. The great powers of Planescape aren't just the gods, devils, and rulers of various planes, but the philosophical factions that, like, fight over these ideals and carry them across the multiverse. And, you know, the this notion of the center of everything being wherever you're standing is also something that gets argued about by the various factions and groups. So, it, it's interesting in that I think this is the first time a D&D &D setting actually came up with core principles that weren't like 
the gods have run the world and the devils fight it from below. That that were philosophical like bullet points in this manner. Yeah, I can't think of anything prior to Planescape. Yeah, I, neither can I. I know. I know for a fact that Eberron has a couple of similar ones. Uh, they're a little more specific and less philosophical, but it has some sort of thematic uh, rules that are used in the game design. And we'll talk about that when we get to Eberron in a future episode. Now, Planescape didn't invent the various multiversal planes of the Dungeons & Dragons cosmology. That was done in a variety of sources throughout first edition, culminating in the Manual of the Planes, a big book talking about all the various planes. What Planescape did was bring that into second edition and clean it up and create a more systemic approach to it uh, and create manners of linking the various planes together and categorizing them into inner planes and outer planes. The inner planes are the elemental realms. There's Earth, Air, Water, and Fire, the classic four, plus the positive plane and the negative energy plane. The para-elemental planes, where the Earth, Air, Water, and Fire meet, so you get ooze, smoke, magma, and ice. And then the quasi-elemental planes, where the various elemental and para-elemental planes meet the positive and negative energy planes, giving you ash, dust, vacuum, salt, lightning, steam, radiance, and mineral. It's a lot of planes. There's 18 of them. That's and a lot. the elemental planes are not particularly hospitable to mortals. They are ah, just pure, It's burning. Yeah, they're just pure elemental forces. They have little pockets in them where you can go sometimes, like the city of brass in the elemental plane of fire is a city full of fire elementals and salamanders and jinn and stuff, and, you know, you can pop into there. You can survive there briefly. Um, and there's similar places in various other elemental planes. There's fortresses built by various groups, but they're not hospitable. You wouldn't want to set an entire adventure in any of these places. You'd want to pop in to grab something important and then get the hell out before you burn to death or are lightninged to death. Hot, too hot. So, yeah. And then you have the outer planes, and outer planes are generally the homes of the gods. This is places, there are, I believe, 17 outer planes, and things like the Abyss, the Beastlands, Mount Celestia, Gehenna, Limbo, Pandemonian, Ysgard, Elysium, and of course, Mechanus. This is where you find Celestials, Infernals, Outsiders of all kinds. Almost all of the outer planes are devoted to a single alignment. The Abyss is chaotic evil. Mechanus is lawful neutral. Elysium is neutral good. So on, so forth. Um, so, the elemental planes are just elements. The outer planes are, you know, each sort of an alignment and a feeling of that alignment. Um, you've got your devils, your demons, your mechanical order people, your... Chaos, Pandemonium, Realm. You're just weird, neutral, limbo realm, stuff like that. And then the Outlands, sometimes known as the Plane of Concordant Opposition, is the meeting place of all the other planes. It just, it's described as being like a giant, like, flat disk, some thousands of miles wide, 
Um, and at its center lies an infinitely tall spire. And at the top of the spire lies the Taurus city of Sigil, which is the heart of the multiverse, according to some people. Again, everyone argues about this. <clears throat> the Outland serves as a meeting ground for planar beings, a place where towns linked to the various planes have grown up, and a location for adventurers to go that's not as immediately hostile as being thrown into the elemental plane of fire. Um, these towns and realms here range from the incredibly strict and lawful town of Automata, which is located next to the gate to Mechanicus, to the town full of madness, known as Bedlam, next to Pandemonium. Madness. Or the honor-bound warriors that live in Glorium, which is on the road to Yisgard. And, you know, there's plenty of others. There's not one for every plane, but there are a bunch of them, and there are things to do and places to go and people to see in the Outlands. And then, of course, at the center of everything and nothing, there is Sigil, known as the City of Doors because essentially any doorway, closet, window, arch in the city can be a portal to a different plane of existence if you have the right key for it. It's also sometimes known as the Birdcage because finding and using the correct portal is not an easy task, and there are plenty of citizens of Sigil who have randomly arrived through a portal and never found their way back to their universe. Whoopsie-daisy. Uh, back to their material plane. So, you know, not great. And of course, the naturally occurring portals are the only way into or out of Sigil. Wish spells don't work. Gate spells don't work. Flying and astral travel don't work. You cannot scale the infinitely tall tower. It's infinitely tall. Um... Scrying spells cannot see into the city, and the city is ruled by someone called the Lady of Pain, and she does not allow gods in the city, so divine intervention won't help you to know what's going on there. So, the city of Sigil is ruled, as I said, by the mysterious entity known as the Lady of Pain. She is as powerful as she is non-communicative. Non She's powerful, and she doesn't talk to anybody. She's also made a couple of rules. No gods are allowed in the city, and nobody can worship her. She has the ability to banish people to a maze-like pocket dimension, and the ability to control, open, shut the portals that appear throughout the city. She's sort of vaguely humanoid. She appears as like a nine-foot-tall person shrouded in robes with a mask for a face and a bunch of knives like pointing out around it and she doesn't actually walk she just kind of floats above the ground and like wanders around the city um, sounds kinky no wonder they call her the lady of pain yeah the the knives for things yeah kind of indicates that and she she doesn't help people except for when she does you 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 just stay out of her way, generally speaking. Um, she runs. She does what she wants. Yeah, there is. She's also incredibly mysterious. The lore for her does not explain anything, and it is recommended that you don't explain anything. Like you can have all sorts of rumors about her. Some say she was a god or an over god of a realm who came here. Some say she was like the other half of the overgod that created all of the planes 
and that she disagreed about, like, the setup, and so decided to do her own thing in Sigil. Um, some say she was one of the, like, uh, demon lords, but decided to, like, revoke being a demon and came here instead. Like, the mis- what her deal is, total not- totally, like, up to you. Just keep it mysterious. Uh, she also, and this is one of the best parts, should not have a stat block. <laughs> um, there is a specific thing, I believe one of the designers said, the Lady of Pain doesn't have a stat block because if she did have a stat block, players would be able to kill her. Um, yeah, players as, do that. Yeah, so no stats for the Lady of Pain. She just does the thing. Um, so with gods not allowed in Sigil, the city is a prime breeding ground for groups focused on philosophy and ideology rather than a particular deity. This has led to a number of cross-planar factions taking up the role of running various parts of the city. Working for or against these factions, or just arguing philosophy with them, is one of the big draws of a Planescape's campaign. Because instead of trying to deal with evil cultists who want to summon the demon lord blah blah, you have to deal with these various factions who are all fighting each other in various ways, and also have much weirder things that they are trying to do for the most part. So here they are. I've got them all listed here, and we're just going to run down them. The Athar are atheists. Or perhaps anti-theists is a better term? They are fully in rebellion against the gods who they view as liars and charlatans. Um, and part of their reason for this belief is the dead gods that you can find in the astral plane. Where there's like colossal corpses of dead fallen deities. The they thing were, they talked about in Spelljammer and did nothing with? Yeah. Well, the Athar having an outpost studying one of those could certainly be a Spelljammer, like, Planescape crossover. Ooh, uh, that is they cool. use Sigil as their base of operations because there's no gods allowed in Sigil. Uh, the Believers of the Source think that everything has the potential to ascend to godhood. They expect to be reincarnated over and over until they reach the ultimate ascension. Um, which may be to another multiverse that you then have to keep doing it. They're, um, they're all about uh, reincarnation. Fun fact, believers of the source cannot be resurrected. Their souls will never come back. Uh, the bleak cabal are nihilists. Uh, they state that the universe, uh, that the multiverse doesn't make sense and isn't supposed to. That there is no higher purpose or meaning to anything. Uh, and so you have to, like, find, look internally to find meaning. They're not just, like, yeah, we are nihilists sort of thing. We believe in nothing. Yeah, they don't believe in nothing. They believe that you have to look internally to find purpose in life. But not everyone gets that. So they're, they're called the bleak cabal for a reason. Now, the Doom Guard... They don't believe in nothing. Dude. They believe in entropy. The universe is meant to fall apart, and trying to fix that is meddling in the natural state of the world. Uh, they have a citadel on the negative plane of energy. Bro, they, why you gotta be so negative all the time? Yeah, they... Things fall apart, the center cannot hold, is the Doom Guard motto, essentially. 
Uh, they're not strictly speaking evil, but they like to see things collapse. Uh, they would be big oh, fans so of engineering disasters. Yes, that too. Uh, the Dustmen believe that life is an illusion, that the multiverse that we know is just a shadow of another, and that these worlds are the afterlife of a better universe. Um, that actual life wouldn't have suffering and sorrow in it, and that this is this multiverse is bad because it's a punishment for whatever you did in your previous life. So they're kind of... Yeah, they're a weird group. Make a uh, prominent appearance at the beginning of the Planescape video game. Yeah, they're a weird group. Um, the Fated believe that might makes right and that compassion is just an excuse for weakness. They're social Darwinists. Um, boo. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the tax collectors of Sigil, by the way. Also, boo. Yes, just double boo there. Uh, the Fraternity of Order are really into laws. The laws of also man. Also, boo. Well, no, no, no. The laws of man, the laws of magic, the laws of the universe. If you can learn those laws, you can gain power and control of the multiverse. That's their thought. They are like order and legal scholar kind of guys. Um, they don't have to uphold them. And in fact, they look for loopholes in them as well. As any good lawyer should. Yeah, they're, they're the lawyer faction. Uh, the Free League are all about individual and personal freedom. Uh, libertarians. Yeah, libertarian, anarchist-ish, but not fully. Mostly just classical libertarian ideals. Uh, the Harmonium believe that peace and stability requires a singular rule. And also that they should be the ones ruling. They're full-on authoritarians with an evangelical streak. Um... Definitely not familiar. Yeah, their lore has them, like, in total rule of a planet on the material plane. Um, that is not a nice place to go. The Mercy Killers believe that justice and retribution are the highest ideals of the multiverse. Uh, their name is not that killing something is mercy. They literally want to kill the ideal of mercy. <laughs> like, because mercy is not something they believe in. They believe in the, the killing and the retribution. And that that is what justice is. And that's, yeah. They are, uh, yeah. They are, at the very least, unlikely to be corrupt, but likely to just kill you outright. Uh, I can't think of any jokes for real-world groups. I mean, they're vigilantes, I guess. They are the Punisher. Yeah, that one works. They're basically vengeance paladins, but before vengeance paladins were a thing. <laughs> um, the Revolutionary League are anarchists. They Yay. want to bring down the other factions and all the powers and overthrow every corrupt system in the multiverse. Laudable goals. They have no leadership and no like meeting place. I mean, you gotta at least have a, a place for your book club to meet. Nope, because that would be some sort of order. Are these the guys that want to burn down libraries because they think that libraries are an unjustified uh, hierarchy of information? Probably. Some uh, of the Revolutionary League would probably be doing that. 
I mean, all those of guys, these, they take it a little bit too far. All of these groups take their thing a little bit too far. That's kind of the point of them. Right? The, yeah. Planescape, it's everything is, it's like looking at everything through a funhouse mirror. Yeah, you, you have to crank it up to 11 to make them interesting and to make, to create conflict. Because if any of these people were reasonable, then what would the adventurers be there for? <laughs> we are here to be unreasonable. Yeah. The sign of one are into uh, solipsism. They believe that the universe can be shaped by individual thought and imagination. And some cool. of some of them are the like I'm the only person in the universe and everything else revolves around my thoughts. Uh, the thing is, though, in a universe with magic, they might not be wrong about being able to shape it through thought and imagination. I mean, that, that's kind of what like a wish spell does. I'm going to wish this Tarask back to life. Wait, back to life? Why? <laughs> that would be the ult the ultimate twist for that for that player character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Society of Sensation thinks that the only way to achieve enlightenment is through experiencing as much of the multiverse as possible. I can uh, dig that group. They're hedonism plus empiricism. Uh, so they they are hedonists. They want to experience. They want to have good experiences all the time. But also empiricism in that they want to understand the universe through their experiences. I feel like I would run them as like some kind of Cenobite since the original Cenobite characters, they weren't like evil demons. They were just exploring the bounds of sensation and it somehow led them to another universe. Yeah. Um, this is like hedonism bot and yeah. Jumbie, bring the chocolate ice cream. I, I kind of want a, like, Warforged member who is hedonism bot. Yes, 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 do it. Um, on the opposite end of this, you have the Transcendent Order, who believe that to tap into the power of the planes, you must stop thinking and act on instinct. That mind and body must be in harmony if you want to, like, be able to flow with the universe. Uh, somewhat similar to Taoism and Zen Buddhism. Yeah. one with everything yes that's how i like my hot dogs i got i got nothing else for that one um i mean the joke goes uh the buddhist monk goes to a hot dog vendor and goes make me one with everything and the hot dog vendor goes fine 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 and makes him a hot dog and the monk pays with the 20 dollar bill and the guy hands him the hot dog and the monk goes up oh, but where's my change and the vendor goes ah monk don't you know change must come from within Monk stole my change. Yes. And the last one is the uh, Chaosic Tex. Uh, it's spelled with an X. Um, to make it extreme, because this is the 90s. Well, it, it, it's more like Zao with sex, Chaos with sex, whatever. They've looked at the multiverse and found only chaos. And they seek not to fight it or harness it, but to live with and in the randomness of the multiverse. Uh, their thing is kind of similar to Discordian philosophy uh, about, like, chaos and randomness. Um, they don't generally have a plan or a goal, which makes them hard to deal with for other factions. But yeah, we have you have all these various factions, and they all kind of hate other ones and get along with some, and 
generally have a time running around Sigil and the Outer Plains trying to do various things, or oppose various things being done by other groups. And it makes for a lot of opportunities for a dungeon master to throw in interesting things in running a campaign. Um, Planescape has just a lot of material that can be used to do whatever you want. A lot of material playing. Oh! oh. Um, and the last, it's not really a faction, but it is a group. Um, and that is the Outsiders, also known as the Clueless. <laughs> and it's, um, it, it's people who have wandered in from other material, from like the material planes. It's adventurers who just, just walked off of Faerun and are now in Sigil. Like, what the hell is this? I was just trying to find the restroom and I opened the door and uh, now I'm here. Yeah. Um, basically, if you did not come from Sigil or one of the planes, you are automatically considered to be an outsider. Oh, or boy. clueless in terms of the factions of Sigil. Um, and, you know, it... The planes also comes with weird monsters, some of whom have been added to D&D in general, uh, some of whom haven't. Like some I don't of whom... think I'm as familiar with the Planescape-specific monsters. Well, Modrons, for one, came from this. Really? Yeah, Modrons are, exist on the elemental plane of order. Mechanus. Hmm. For um, some reason, I thought that showed up earlier. I think they may have shown up earlier, but uh, Planescape is where they really became a cool, competent thing. I believe they showed up in the Manual of the Planes in 1st Edition, but Planescape is where they really got going and got interesting. Uh, because one of the first adventures for Planescape was uh, the March of the Modrons. Um, and it kind of got into some of their philosophy. Um, but, you know, it's some things like the Bargeist, which is a, like, goblin dog, shape changers, um, cranium. I've heard of Bargeist, but I can't picture it in my brain. It, it's sort of like a goblin shapeshifter wolf thing. Uh, I don't know that they're in... 5e, or if they are, they're in uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters rather than the normal one. Uh, cranium Rats. <laughs> Brain. Um, which are, like, psychic rat monster swarms. Um, they're... Uh, they're in current editions. Uh, there are some other weird stuff. Um, Magmen... Uh, there's some, like, Egyptian-style minions. Yeah, the Modrons are here and in various levels and types um, in all the different ranks um, from monodrones to duodrones, tridrones, quadrones, pentadrone, decadrone. It, it, it just keeps going. 
They're, Too many drones. Yeah, they they just keep firing drones at you. Um, yeah, they're weird dudes. And of course, there's the classic rogue Modrons um, where they uh, can break free of the like order hive mind thing and leave um, and like do things themselves. Uh, in it, when this happens, um, a rogue Modron, at least according to second edition rules, could not be chaotic. It had to still remain lawful. <laughs> um, it's just that it's being lawful as a player character is more chaotic than Modrons accept. Yeah, Modrons are weird. You have nothing to break but your alignment. Yeah. You know, and various elemental creatures that would only really show up in different things. Uh, lesser Yugoloths. Um, and the various types of Yugoloth. Like, there are a bunch of monsters that kind of hang out in Planescape. Uh, Tieflings and Azamar are much more common in Planescape, or at least they were in old editions. In current editions, you know, tieflings are now everywhere because everyone likes to play tieflings. Um, but in second edition, tieflings and Azamar really only showed up in Planescape as like the core point of if you wanted to play them, that's what you would do. So yeah, Planescape. It's a good one. It was great came out in second edition you can get the second edition pdf off of drive through rpg i definitely did that's what i use for this but there is a future to planescape oh boy the wizards of the coast has announced that next year they will be coming out with a three book set of no. planescape materials as a setting uh in the same way that they just did Spelljammer. I don't know if I'm ready to get my heart broken twice by yeah. Wizards of the Coast. This is concerning to me because you need to describe the Outlands, you need to describe Sigil, you need to describe all the factions located within Sigil in that 64 pages of the setting. Um, and which they did not. Which they have not done. They they couldn't do any of that in Spelljammer. So, yeah. And you also need to talk about the mechanics of the portals and gates that link the planes and, you know, that allow you to travel to and from Sigil. And you probably want to include some of the magic um, restrictions and spells and items and stuff that you might find in Sigil and that allow you to travel through the planes. Uh, an elemental compass, for example, is required if you want to travel with any, like, consistency through the elemental planes. Um, There's just going to be one spell in the book, and it's called elemental compass, and that's it. Well, an elemental compass is like an item, but yeah, you, you need to describe some of this stuff. You need to actually create material for it, and I'm worried that they're not going to have an ability to do that. And you also need to, like talk about the NPCs that are there because Sigil, I didn't really talk about it, but Sigil is full of a variety of NPCs, mostly the people who run the various factions, but also like 
there are shopkeepers, there are different businesses that run through the multiverse, there are all sorts of interesting characters that show up there, and I feel like they're not going to get a lot of them. Um, and then 64 pages for monsters seems like it might be too many, almost. I mean, we already had the Mordenkainen's uh, foes, whatever, the list of all the multiversal creatures. So we've had a lot of the beasts that are normally in here already included. So unless you're just coming up with new stat blocks for them, which, okay, I wouldn't mind. Um, 64 pages for monsters is not maybe the best thing. And then... I, maybe they'll come up with new stuff, but... Uh, that, the the only real new thing that 5th edition Spelljammer had monster-wise was, I think, the Space Clowns. I think yeah. everything else had shown up elsewhere. Um, which, I don't get me wrong, I like the Space Clowns, but you could have been a little more creative. Um, and then 64 pages for an adventure module for Planescape, I, I also don't know about because, like... I don't know what you would do in a 64-page adventure module that is able to really delve into the philosophy elements of Planescape in any real interesting way. Um, especially because I get the feeling that they're going to want to do something like they did in Spelljammer where it jumps around to all the various planes to give people like a feeling of going places and seeing stuff. Like a whirlwind tour kind of thing. Which, again, doesn't really fit in the Planescape uh, idiom. So I'm worried about it. Yep. I'm worried. That this is not how you should do a Planescape book. A Planescape setting book. That going back to the standard like one 300 page book would be a much better idea because then you could describe the planes, you could describe Sigil, you could have a little section on monsters and you could have a smaller adventure that is, you know, just um, do some stuff in Sigil and get sent to the Outlands to pick up something and then see the start of a bigger adventure that you could then sell a bigger adventure. Yeah, aside from having like the adventure being a separate book so that just the DM can look at it. I really don't understand any advantage of having multiple books. I don't either. I really don't. It. They've done it in the past. Like second edition Sigil or second edition Planescape was several books. There was. Yeah, but that feels more like how they used to do like the main book and then splat books for anything else you would need. Well, that's the thing. It wasn't quite that. It was a... Um, a DM guide to the planes, a player guide to the planes, and a monstrous supplement, and a book called Sigil and Beyond that was, you know, kind of the core of the campaign setting. Um, which, you know, a player's guide to the planes was a 32-page book, a DM's guide to the plane was 64 pages... Specifically for the Dungeon Master, Sigil and Beyond was 96-page, like, guide to all the planes and stuff for 
dungeon masters primarily that um, had a lot of like structuring uh, campaigns and setting up the various rules for all of the multiverse. And then the monstrous supplement was again a 32 page collection of small monsters. Um, and that was the like Planescape box set. Um, four books plus some maps and a DM screen. Which, I, so it seems like what they're trying to do now is just go back to that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Problem is, that was more than three 64-page books. That was essentially a, two 64-pages and a 96-page one, and none of them were adventure modules. Like, all of the information was new information rather than new information plus a one-use adventure module. So that, that that's kind of weak to me. Wizards, what are you doing killing me? They're making money for the shareholders. No. No money for the shareholders. Yeah. Um, so that's Planescape. We, are, we want Planescape 5e to be good. More than anything, I want them to do a good job and create a really good thing for everyone to enjoy. I'm worried that that's not going to happen, though. Um, I just, I, I hope it's amazing. I hope Planescape comes out and everyone's like, this is the best book ever. That would, I would, that would be great. I would like it to be the best book ever. Yeah. I want it to be so good that in 20 years' time, when Dungeons & Dragons is in 10th edition, people keep referring back to, oh, don't you remember 5th edition Planescape? That was such a good setting book. I'm amazed at what they fit into 64 pages. I just have doubts that that will happen. Yeah. And on that downer note, we have a segment on this podcast called Board Game Corner. Ed... You've got a board game for us today. Hey, do you like being inappropriate? Um, do you hate Cards Against Humanity for some reason? Uh, then you should probably check out Joking Hazard, made by Cyanide and Happiness. Um, they're a webcomic that I don't remember when they started, but sometime back in the 2000s, their humor is very inappropriate, they have uh, very distinctive characters that they use. You've probably seen them. They've got big round heads and kind of like square bodies and then just little lines for arms and legs. And of all the Cards Against Humanity type spinoff games, I think this is the one that I like the best, specifically because of the art element to it. The idea is that you're trying to create a three-panel uh, cyanide and happiness type uh, comic strip. One player is the judge and then everybody else uh, is submitting cards to make that happen. So uh, you will I uh, can't remember the exact order now, but the player who is the judge, they will play down one card from their hand as the starting panel. They'll draw a card from the deck and put that down as a second panel and then everybody else puts down a uh, third card for their, uh, like, the punchline panel. And that's essentially it. And 
it is funny as hell. That's really the only way I can describe it. Uh, we played it at my bachelor party and there was some joke regarding one of the characters doing drugs and it caused him to go super Saiyan. And it was just so dumb that I just could not stop laughing for some reason. I don't know how that happened. Um, but what I do like it compared to apples and apples is that there is less mean spirited, racist, ableist humor uh, than in Cards Against Humanity. You're not trying to specifically be uh, offensive for yucks. Uh, Cards Against, or sorry, Joking Hazard is more, it tends more towards like gross out humor, it's, uh, it tends sexualized towards, humor, and just kind of absurdity in general. Yeah, I was going to say it tends towards the absurd. The fact that you are trying to make sense of the third panel of a comic out of two random previous panels gives it a little bit of a uh, exquisite corpse feeling. Yeah. Um, so far in our playing of it, there's only been a couple of cards that I've had to take out of the deck because it's like, oh, yes, this is, at least to our group, uh, could be considered offensive. So we have kind of our uh, our burn pile of cards that we'll never use. Um, but overall, the humor feels better, at least from my own perspective. I don't know if you had any any insights on it, really. I enjoyed it. Like I said, I, it feels more like ex an exquisite corpse style of artistic thing where you finish the work that someone else had started yeah. um, than it does the sort of Mad Libs style of Cards Against Humanity. Um, it has yeah, I can, a slightly I can stronger value to it. Um, a more yeah. creative nature, uh, which I like. Um, it would be, I don't know, I feel like it should, it's a good party game. The scoring system or having one player be the judge, basically there's no real point to that. Like, who wins? Basically, you just you just go until you're, you go until you're done. And then I think it, the way we usually do it is, uh, you know, who has the largest amount of winning winning jokes, basically. Yeah, but, I mean, who wins? Who cares at that point? It's not a... Yeah, nobody really cares. It's about making it's about making other people laugh. Yeah, party game stuff. Yep. We did do an, uh, a variant of it that I think you introduced us to, where in addition to um, all the players putting down their cards, we also took down a card from the top of the deck and added that into the pile. And at my bachelor party, uh, the deck actually came in second with the most amount of winners. Yeah, sometimes just... Which that itself was pretty funny. Yeah, sometimes just having a random version thrown in there can really up the game. And So yeah, joking hazard. It's uh, out there. It's pretty easy to find. There's a lot of different expansions, uh, usually themed around something inappropriate. So go and play it. It'll make you laugh, probably. I don't know you. Yeah, and that's our show. As always, thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, etc., etc. Do whatever you feel like. We're not your boss. Uh, play Planescape. Um, yep, do it. Join do it a now. union. Donate to things. Ed? Oh, uh, you can follow me at Anna Madness. Uh, sometimes I post things there, not so much lately. 
you can follow us on the on the Twitter at Null Country. I'm currently getting shown up on my old my own weirdness posting stuff there. Uh, you can give some cash to True Colors United. Uh, you can donate to your reproductive justice funds. Uh, you can support the Ukrainians. And remember, snitches get stitches when posting uh, OSINT online. Uh, seize your means of production. That's, I don't know, I'm, I, that's all the platitudes I've got for today. And as always, go Knowles. Go Knowles!